Hello and welcome to a new show on Crux where we're talking about oil and gas. I'm delighted to say that I have with me Neil Young, the CEO and Managing Director of Elixir Energy, uh, who's going to um, help talk me through this this uh, this vast and complicated sector. Uh, Neil, welcome. How are you? I'm very good, Merlin. It's always a pleasure to be talking to you guys uh, at Crux. And as you say, it's a very, very big sector. We'll only touch upon a few areas, but there's lots of interesting things happening. Now, in preparation for this, I've, I've gone to the, the BP Energy Outlook um, for 2023 and just had a, a kind of a step back to look at the kind of the, the wider uh, energy market for the next... Uh, um, they have these scenarios going out to 2030, 2040, 2050. Uh, just two days ago, the World Bank has also produced a new energy uh, outlook looking at the the changing geopolitical um, scenario with conflicts in uh, the Middle East and, of course, Ukraine and Russia. And over the top of this, we've got the um, the kind of the, the global economy with um, risks of slowdown. So that the you know when I speak to people in the oil and gas sector, they typically say, "Oh, they just just don't know where the oil price is going to go. It could go lower because of." Um, a weakening economy and it could go higher because of supply shock. So they're just kind of rolling with the punches. Um, you very helpfully have kind of done a little bit of an industry review um, to see kind of where where things are in terms of um, the, 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 the Western capital markets, oil and gas companies. So perhaps could you just kind of start off by um, sharing some of your core observations of where the industry has kind of has got to, and, and then we can kind of take it on from there. Well, I think it's, it's wise of everyone to not speculate as whether price is going up or down, because obviously if we knew, we would be uh, zillionaires in retirement. Um, uh, but I think that's, that's a short-term picture. And the, the most fascinating recent development to me that, that underwrites a, a bullish long-term view was the very recent commencement of large-scale consolidation started in America. And uh, just over a month ago, Exxon announced that they were going to acquire Pioneer Natural Resources for like about $60 billion. And within less than a month, Chevron followed up and announced they were going to acquire Hess for a, nearly the same sort of quantum. So, you know, in, in total, nearly $120 billion worth of deals in a month. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I thought, this is game on. This is a game of dominoes. Once the first one falls, everyone has to move. And this is now proving to be the case. And for those who've observed the sector for a longer time, it's a very close replica to what happened in the 90s when the then seven sisters and the large European majors consolidated into what are now the super majors, who've been somewhat static uh, you know, for the last 25 plus years. Now, to circle back to your point about commodity price outlooks, these deals are being done because very sophisticated people believe that there's an enormous long-term potential for oil and gas. If they didn't, they'd be liquidating and handing back the money. But these acquisitions demonstrate that people are, in effect, investing many tens of billions of dollars on a long-term view of the viability of demand for these products, uh, both oil and gas, but in, in, in different ways. So I think that's fascinating development, and I expect to see more consolidation to happen in the States and then flowing to the rest of the world. Um, I mean, you, you said that kind of lots of very smart people have kind of made the decisions, but um, I, I've seen big companies make mistakes through cycles. Uh, yeah, it's right. happened uh, uh, that quite a lot of companies arrive 
the big companies particularly, they arrive at the party a little bit late and they say, um, now is the time, for example, oh, to buy, um, you know, Rio Tinto buying um, Alcoa, for example, um, or sorry, Alcan. Um, you, know, you, you know, these the, the, some of these deals weren't particularly uh, good in the terms of the price of the cycle. Did the oil and gas uh, acquisitions in the late 90s, 25 years ago, did that work out for them? Have they got a track record of getting this right? I think compared to the mining sector, the answer is yes. I mean, as you said, the the Rio Alcan deal was was an absolute shocker, and anyone could see that at the time. the The major consolidation in the nineties, which was originally driven by BP and then other people followed, was sensible at the time. And uh, I've I've not seen any adverse comments since then as to the lack of logic behind that and the success of the companies that followed that acquisition cycle. And indeed, in the twenty five plus years since, there have been only very few large acquisitions. Shell, Shell BG, probably one of the largest. Apart from that, I can see the odd deal where someone's blown their brains out on a few billion dollars here or there. In in oil and gas terms, that's not a lot, but but no, nothing of anywhere near the sort of equal magnitude as the Rio Alcan deal. And I think in terms of discipline, we can see in these deals that people are paying in script, and people are not giving big premiums and they're doing smart deal making. And they're not they're not highly contested, which then you know usually involve egos and testosterone and people paying too much. And so I really see it as being quite a measured transaction uh, or series of transactions with more to follow. Could you just kind of take a step back for me and uh, kind of sh- shed some light on the split between the the parastatals or the um, or the or the governmental uh, oil um, producers relative to the Kind of capital markets, oil producers, kind of in terms of the split and the influence, and um, what leads in terms of uh, a signal to the market. Um, do you understand what I'm trying to ask? You know, um, you know, what what are the, what are the what are the lead indicators on the sector? Is it always the private sector, or is it the the, the state oil companies that can have a and huge? The influence? private sector can make big mistakes, as you've alluded to, but I think anybody who is in business and interacts with governments and such like. So governments are more prone to make mistakes than than the private sector. And no one's perfect, but there's a spectrum and, and governments get things, uh, uh, tend to be more wrong than the private sector is. Uh, I think one, one aspect of the oil and gas sector, certainly compared to mining, is that the national oil companies have a considerable share of the global market. Um, but they tend to follow cues still to this day from the large companies like Exxon and Shell, et cetera. And, and those large private companies tend to be better technically and and to undertake activities which the national oil companies follow. Now, one interesting fact about this consolidation round is that the NOCs cannot consolidate in the same way because, you know, if you're a national company of Venezuela, you're not going to go and merge with the national company of uh, you know, Colombia because there'll be a war. Now, the only, um, you know, Qualifier to that is that China's got three large national oil companies. Would there be any consolidation there? And there could be, but even there, you know, there's bureaucratic hatred between those sorts of things where, when they tend to be publicly owned like that. So I think the, the NOCs will be watching this consolidation round with enormous interest uh, and, and uh, uh, probably dissatisfaction in that they won't really be able to participate. So I, I think that the uh, to, to go back to your point, um, the, the private sector tends to get it right more often, 
And if I go to another one of the recent studies that you, you mentioned recently, one is from the IEA, the International Energy Authority. Just a few weeks ago, they, they said something which was very tautological, and that was they said, if governments meet their commitments to Paris, then demand for oil and gas will go down. You go, well, that's like saying one and one equals two. It means nothing. Yes. I mean, the, the real analysis is to say, will governments meet their, their so-called commitments, which of course are not legally binding upon them. And I think the, the fact of these mergers uh, is a very clear vote to say, well, they won't. They haven't to date, and then the chances of them politically doing so are, are thin, which means that demand for oil and gas in particular will endure. And uh, that, that uh, I think, is an unfortunate fact. You know, if, if, if you have a view that the continued consumption of fossil fuels will, will tend to increase temperatures, which I think it will, but also what you want is in the private sector coming up with solutions like carbon capture and storage. And again, in terms of consolidation, we've seen in the last couple of months some very interesting multi-billion dollar deals when the private sector has spent a lot of money saying that CCS is going to work. Um, I, I will want to come on to CCS, but um, before we do that, let's let's go to uh, both the supply and the demand side of things. And right. you, you've, you've, you've introduced the, um, the, the, the topic of the energy transition and uh, adhering to uh, Paris Accord uh, CO2 emissions guidelines. Um, as you say, it's pretty clear that uh, we're not meeting the, those those guidelines uh, on a kind of a, on a global basis, com- country by country. We're just we're, we're, we're just not getting there, and that's that's fine in in many ways. Um, if one believes that the kind of some of the the, the key aspects for humanity are uh, affordable, secure. And available energy supplies, because there's always this this balance, isn't there, between what actually we need today for civilization and what uh, the the models suggest that we need in the future for uh, so the continued progress of civilization. Um, yes, it's agreed that um, oil de- um, demand is likely to decline on a on a relative basis in the future, and potentially on an absolute basis. If you look at the work of, I don't know, Vaclav Smil, this energy analyst, um, very eminent uh, Canadian uh, Czech uh, author, he he talks about energy tra- energy transitions always being additive, as in you you bring in new sources of energy, you bring in more um, energy dense uh, uh, sources rather than switching away from an energy dense source like oil and gas to to replace it with something else. So in a, in, in a sense, you do have that demand driver going forward. Um, I, I've, I've got here the, the core beliefs written out by the, uh, uh, printed out from the BP Energy Outlook 2023. And it's interesting that they, that, that they kind of slightly hedge their bets given the political climate or the social climate uh, of the Twitter sphere, should we say. And they say... Um, I'll, I'll read it out. It's quite interesting. Oil demand declines over the outlook, driven by falling use in road transport as the efficiency of the vehicle fleet improves and the electrification of ro- road vehicles accelerates. Even so, oil continues to play a major role in the global energy system for the next 15 to 20 years. Now, when I read that, I think they've got the decimal place wrong. I think it should be um, for the next 150 to 200 years. Um, but that they do say that it's going to be a core part of the energy system. I mean, 
Um, do you fundamentally believe that we can actually reduce our uh, oil demand on an absolute basis? I think 15 to 20 years is, is, is clearly uh, beyond most people's view of what's conceivably possible. Um, Backless Mill, uh, for all our viewers, I'd hardly recommend reading his book, How the Work World Really Works, um, which I'm sure you've read, Marlon. It's, it, it's, it's a great book. Um, and as you say, the, the reality of, of energy over the last you know, 250 years since the start of the Industrial Revolution is that demand goes up. And, and indeed, there was an observation made in the early 19th century by a, by a British guy called Jevons, called Jevons Paradox, and it's about how as energy becomes cheaper, you use more of it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, you, as things uh, they become cheaper because they become more efficient. So uh, as steam engines became more efficient, didn't use less coal, you used more because you found more things to do with it. Um, and with with oil, it's somewhat close to the Jevons paradox. But we, you know, as in the states recently, you see in Australia, is that the people got bigger cars. Now they they might be more efficient. That doesn't mean you know you still drive a 1960s Mini and uh, that's got a more efficient engine. You you drive a Ford you know 150 truck, and uh, that that means that demand to chip away at it is really really hard. So I think absolute falls in demand for vehicle use are vaguely possible, but of course there's this core demand for petroleum products that, that are plastics and things like that, which are absolutely unsubstitutable at this point. And and, and growing and growing at an exponential rate. I mean, the, the use of plastics and the the fact that we're speaking over the internet. Um, and if you look at the, the way that data uh, and electronic and computer use and uh, the internet uses a lot of demand, as you say, we we increase our range of of um and de demand sources. You know, our lifestyles keep on demanding more and more energy. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So. Um, I think human nature you know, and, and the process of evolution, which has lasted for billions of years, means that it is almost impossible because it goes against our genetics to to change our natures and stop striving. And uh, that means, therefore, we need to, to deal with that reality by developing other technologies which can, can deal with the effects of, of, of CO2 emissions and other, other forms of global warming and still use petroleum for plastics and other things like that. Now, we want to recycle and stuff, but you know, the, you can't have 8 billion people on this planet and, and, and stop using fossil fuels. So that's just an unfortunate, very blunt reality. I think that leads us straight onto um, carbon capture and storage. I'll go back to exploration and, and uh, new supplies, but let's um, um, tell me a, a bit more, please, about carbon capture storage, because I'm pretty ignorant in this area. So carbon capture and storage is uh, the process of uh, taking CO2 from various sources, from, from industrial processes, from gas processing plants, capturing it from the air or indeed the ocean, and then injecting it into different types of underground reservoirs where it will stay for the, for the remaining period of human history, which uh, is going to be considerably less than any geological era. Just that, That's just obvious based on, on most species, how they, how they, how they live for and uh, it's been undertaken in the states for you know since the 60s for the purpose of encouraging uh, new oil production so it's not exactly a new technology purely as a storage mechanism not as an enhanced oil recovery or eor process has been undertaken for at least 20 years in the north sea in australia there's a number of projects of which the most mature is one operated by chevron on, on, on gorgon lng project some people say 
that it's failing because its objective was to store 3 million tons a year and is storing about half that, but uh, it's increasing that and it's still 1.5 million tons a year. So that's not a failure. People who say it's a failing is a political statement, not an engineering one. Now, I think the interesting developments, and again, go back to my thesis about the private sector will validate things by spending you know, real money. And recently, we've had Exxon, who are not known for being uh, too um, you know, touchy-feely, bought a company called Denbury for $4 billion. And, and Denbury is a company driven by CO2, uh, uh, carbon capture and storage and movement. So, uh, pretty shortly after that, Occidental bought a company called Carbon Engineering for more than a billion dollars. And uh, Carbon Engineering's claim to fame is that it is a pioneer in direct air capture, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then Oxy's using their technology to inject that into depleted oil fields in Texas. And, and, and Oxy's a global leader in doing so. It's been the EOR leader for now 40 or 50 years. So those are very real deals there. In the States, that's assisted by what's called 45Q credits, which uh, was uh, and have been on the go for maybe you know, 10 years, but was enhanced significantly by the IRA. And now I'm from the UK originally. That's not the uh, IRA that we know. It's the Inflation Reduction Act, a rather more benign uh, body. And uh, and it's, it's really turbocharging CCS in the States. Uh, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I was I was in in the U.S. recently and in various states, and CCS is attracting uh, you know lots of other investment and other than those headline numbers that I mentioned. In Australia, there are companies like Marabini who bought into a project in in Queensland last year. Samsung who's buying into a WA project. So you know, the, again, these are large companies with with big balance sheets, a lot of brain power. Now, yes, they can make mistakes, but collectively they tend not to. That that tends to be how capitalism works. So, I'm I'm really fascinated to see this, and I think it it shows how capitalism, rather than the mandates about reducing demand, which is politically unacceptable, um, uh, can 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 address the issues of global warming. And how much do you think of um, global CO two can be reduced by the the private sector? Uh, doing these carbon capture storage uh, things. I mean, are the um, NOCs going to follow suit to the national oil companies? Do you think it's going to be kind of, um, accepted practice across the entire industry within 50 years or within 10 years? Or um... oh, yeah, I mentioned them earlier about my, some problems I have with them, but uh, that, you know, there are other things that, that I do respect. And, and they, they still have a view that, that the increase in IEA, the CCS required around the world is absolutely massive. And uh, I, I agree with that. Um, the, the NOCs, I think Petronas was already participating in a project offshore Malaysia, potentially I think with Shell. Um, Statoil, if you can call them an NOC, I'm sure they, they would like it. Parastatal. One of the global leaders uh, in that. So, And, and you know, even in China, Sinopec has significant CCS projects. And what happens inside the PRC tends to be somewhat you know, invisible, but um, they are a major player in that. Um, and I'm sure what what they're doing, Petro China and uh, uh, the, the other Chinese companies will will want to follow with. Um, so I, I can see that 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 process accelerating, uh, and I think that there are are other things the industry will do to to reduce emissions uh, as well, which are some of which are early stage or yet to be thought of. And uh, uh, and, and I think by by the public sector setting the rules and the private sector getting on with it is is likely to be the best solution to 
to the problems that we face. And if you imagine an oil price of, let's say, $100 going forward, because the maths is easy, um, how many extra dollars would it cost to kind of integrate the CCS into the the, the, the barrel of oil and, and, and what, therefore, that is kind of an inflationary percentage, which will obviously translate through to almost every aspect of um, life today. Well, I think there's a couple of things. When a hundred dollar barrel of oil provides a lot of cash flow to governments and uh, private sector companies and NSCs to then reinvest in the long term uh, into into the likes of CCS. Um, and a, a barrel of oil emits a certain amount of CO2. I can't I can't remember. I'll stop my head. I'm more familiar with it in terms of megawatt hours and things like that. Um, but there's certainly a lot of margin in a hundred dollars for the amount of kgs of CO2 produced from its combustion. To, to pay for CCS. Um, and CCS costs are different in different locations depending on reservoir and, and cost of capture of CO2. But that, that cost of capture from, from processes, from the air, from the ocean is coming down. And I think one of the great things about the IRA is that it, it's, you know, it's, it's in the States and it's geographically bounded largely by, by that country, but it, it will lead to technology improvements which will be applicable globally. So, I mean, as, as we saw with the technology improvements in solar and wind, which were induced by, by government actions in various locations, that, that then had global applications. The cost of solar panels, for, for example, you know, came down by a factor of 10 over the last 20 years. So just kind of reading between the lines and kind of projecting forward, you're, you're effectively saying that the CCS is likely to become accepted or good practice and it's going to be widely applied and it's going to have a relatively small um, Kind of inflationary impact or additional cost impact on the delivery of oil to the to your pump or to your to your fridge. Let's call it that way. Because um, I mean, it, it will cost something, but I think it's far more acceptable than saying to people, you know, wear a hair shirt and uh, and freeze. Um, and uh, and even in a rich country like the UK or a rich one like Australia, you see that the governments absolutely balk when it comes to the reality of. Yeah, everyone wants to, to to do the right thing, but oh, do you do you want to install a heat pump? It's going to cost you twenty grand. Well, wait a minute, I'm not I'm not sure about that. And uh, so I think CCS will will cost less than those alternatives. Now, in terms of its political acceptance in places like Texas or most of the states, it's um it's not a problem. And indeed, it's interesting to observe that the IRA was passed by a straight Democratic line, um, although it largely benefits Republican states. And so I think. It can endure any change of government in Washington. In other places, including some parts of Australia, um, the green left doesn't like it because they adopt what I think is just complete illogic. And they say, oh, you're only doing that to keep fossil fuels going. And then my sort of view is, well, if the problem with fossil fuels is it causes emissions and then you fix the emissions, then what's the problem? Um, so, uh, you know, but, you know, logic doesn't necessarily prevail in those sorts no. of arguments. And, uh, <laughs> but I think votes prevail in those sorts of arguments in the end of the day. Um, and, and so, notwithstanding those, those issues, which, you know, are material in certain places, the brutal logic of do you want to wear hair shirts or do you want to actually you know, get on with a, with, a, with a bit more incremental cost and still have, have GDP growth and, uh, and not have to go and decide what half the world you're going to go and kill because you you, you don't have fossil fuels. And Robert Bryce calls it uh, the, the the iron law of, of of energy supply or energy demand. You know, um, when it comes to it, humanity needs the energy, and um, uh, that will come first, and everything else will come come after that. Yeah. Um, let's let's go back um, to 
this the consolidation that you mentioned right at the beginning of the um, of by the super majors in the U.S. kind of leading the the charge towards an awareness of a higher oil price um, background in the future. Um, now, obviously, what they've done is they've bought companies which have got uh, runway and the ability to produce oil and gas. I see it in the in the hard rock sector as well. They they the the bigger companies like to buy the next kind of rung down, which have got development projects and a kind of a big portfolio of uh, kind of, uh, assets which can produce in the future. But they don't typically buy exploration companies in the oil and gas sector, as in the 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 junior sector. There's been this kind of dearth of capital for the junior sector, for the junior market, for um, exploration and in 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 the gold sector kind of three quarters of the new discoveries are made by juniors and similarly in the oil and gas sector that's uh, um you know a lot of the early stage discoveries are run and driven by juniors but it's been a capital starved environment does that mean that there's this kind of huge gap in the development pipeline and who is going to do the uh, exploration and how is it going to get paid for many questions well, I mean, it's it's a great question, and clearly, as an MD of an exploration company, clearly close to heart. I mean, I mean, the, the the positives I take from this are that the capital markets who've been reluctant to invest in oil and gas are getting a signal from the largest participants in those markets that there's a very long term future, and the nature of oil and gas and mining is that you know, assets deplete, and and oil and gas is you know. Just to pick a number, it's five percent a year. And if you're basically saying I'm picking up companies because I think they've got a thirty or forty year life, and you've got a five percent depletion factor, then you have to replace barrels or gigajoules within a reasonable time frame. And if you're not exploring, and the, and the large companies haven't really explored much, then you will have to go and pick up the incremental barrels from those people who have been exploring. And so capital will cascade down. I think capital will also cascade in, in a couple of other ways. Firstly, the, the big companies, once they merge, will say, oh, okay, we, we, we don't want asset X because it's not, not, not material to us. But asset X will then find a home in people for whom it is material and who, who can make it work. And the, the sources of capital from that can be public markets, but there will also be private equity and other sources who will see that, hey, we can make money out of this. And Certainly on the ASX in recent years, you know, probably the best sector to have been in has been coal because it was hated and then everyone realized, hey, it's making just lots and lots of money. Um, and so I think that oil and gas globally will sort of tend to follow that paradigm. So I, I think that uh, us juniors can take great heart from these massive consolidations happening at the highest level. I think another thing you can pick from the you know the couple of transactions to date is that they have been focused on America and the Americas. I mean, they've really been based on Permian Basin consolidation. They're picking up assets in offshore Guyana and such like that um, that are in effect covered by the Monroe Doctrine. If you're a student of American politics, um, I think that that says, and certainly the Ukraine war showed that assets in safer locations tend to command a premium. Uh, and uh, you know BP, who you know you mentioned earlier, would would know that better than most. You know the U day the Ukraine war started, and owning twenty percent of Russian F didn't seem like such quite a good idea. Or if you're Shell owning an asset, asset on Sakhalin, you know you, you basically torched five billion dollars in a day. So 
assets in countries like Australia, where, where you know our small company has has a presence, you know, become more valuable. Now, in in our sorts of countries, we moan about sovereign risk when the government does very stupid things, which all governments do from time to time. But those governments don't start wars or steal your assets, and other places do. And uh, in, in, a, in a globally fungible sector, in, in terms of capital flows, the capital will tend to go to those those areas on the spectrum of sovereign risk like that. And, and again, these consolidations show it. I think the US consolidations will flow to Europe, and I think Shell will take BP. I think it will flow to Australia, and I think Woodside will be pressed to not be the wrong size and take Sandos because they can pay script for it. And then similar things can happen to other countries. And that will then throw up opportunities for, for nimble uh, parties to pick up assets funded by public or private markets, as I said. Wow, you heard it here first. Um, good stuff. Um, and do you fundamentally believe that the junior sector is the best, is the right type of mentality and approach to do exploration? Or, and the, the flip side of that is, does that imply that, um, or, or I put it to you, does it mean that um, the majors are not particularly good at exploration? Well, I think it's, it's horses for courses. When it comes to like deep, deep off water gulf, where a well's going to cost you $100 million, then the majors are, are the parties to, to investigate it, design it, and execute it. When it comes to cheaper opportunities or, or you know, places that people haven't really thought about or which require more risk, then, then the juniors are the ones who can do it because they can marshal risk capital without, for instance, being a geologist inside Shell. You know, you might lose your job or you get something wrong. Well, if you're a junior company, you can roll the dice. Well, that that's life. You know, you might still lose your job, but that's that's you expect to. Um, and uh, you know, I think that 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 uh, it's very healthy to have a sector with those very different niches and uh, risk appetites in it because that broader ecosystem delivers a better outcome for the overall demand and supply balance uh, of the globe as a whole. Um, Neil, thank you so much. There are a million other questions that I would want to talk to you. Perhaps we could come back another time and talk about the the split between oil and gas um, oil and gas um, in, in, the, in the energy mix. But um, as an introductory uh, uh, 40 minutes or so, it's been really fascinating. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again. Now it's been it's been great, Merlin. I could drive it on about this uh, all day and night, as you can no doubt tell. So I'm really really pleased to do so.